1: With Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com/slash credit card.
0: The volume.
1: We're back with another week of football, and DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping us in on the NFL action with great offers every single game day. New customers can bet $5 and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Throw five down on any of this week's epic matchups and walk away an instant. Winter. And DraftKings isn't stopping there. All customers can take advantage of two new offers every single game day this September. Football's more fun when you're in on the action. So download the app now and sign up with code HOOPS. New customers can bet just $5 to get $200 instantly in bonus bets Only on the DraftKings Sportsbook app, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877 hope and why or text hope and why to 467369 in Connecticut help is available for problem gambling call 888 7777 or visit ccpg.org please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles in Louisiana 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario see sportsbook.draftkings.com football Terms for eligibility. Terms and responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Saturday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having a great weekend so far. We are also live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feeds, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We're continuing our power rankings, finally, today, after a break, to go over some preseason stuff and to have our, our special interview with Jovan Buha, which, by the way, Lakers fans, if you missed that, um, yesterday we recorded about 40 minutes or so with Yovan Buha, I went all over the Lakers training camp Uh, first week of practice, and a bunch of specific questions surrounding the team, so make sure you guys check that show out. But we're back to our power rankings today with number five, the Phoenix Suns. I've got a full season preview on Phoenix, and then I've got three mailbag questions for the end of the show as well. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Don't forget about our podcast feed under Hoops Tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT, and I need more mailbag questions, so keep dropping those in the YouTube comments. All right. So, um, a quick off-season recap. They lost DeAndre Ayton, Darius Baisley, a lot of roster turnover here. Lost Bismack, Biombo, Torrey Craig, Jock Landale, Chris Paul, Cameron Payne, Terrence Ross, Landry Schammett, and TJ Warren. And hang with me here. I'm going to give really quick breakdowns on each guy that they uh, uh, brought in. Grayson Allen. Starting two-guard for the Bucks the last two years. Outstanding spot-up player last year. 1.26 points per possession on 230 possessions. Out of 126 players to log at least 200 spot-up possessions, Grayson Allen ranked second in efficiency there. 71% effective field goal percentage on unguarded catch-and-shoot jump shots. So a guy you just can't really leave open. The nice thing with Grayson Allen is he can really stretch it out to like 26, 27 feet. So like there's guys that can space to the corners, and then there's guys that can space above the break. And then there are guys that can space... Outside the above the break line, I remember um, Ryan Anderson was one of those guys back in the day for the Rockets. But the ability to consistently knock down shots a few feet behind the NBA line on the above the break line is super valuable because it prevents that defensive player from being able to dig down to the nail. You guys have probably heard that before, where you see a guy icing, uh, isolating a, a defender. Uh, around the top of the key and you hear the announcer say like, you know, there's a guy hanging out at the nail. What that means is the guy who's guarding the guy on the wing is sagging way off of him down almost to where the free throw line is, which is where the little nail is that's stabbed into the to the hardwood right in front of the free throw line, right? So, like, one of the best ways to beat nail help is to have a guy who can consistently catch and shoot threes on the wing above the break, but the further you stretch him out behind the line, the harder it is for that guy to make that rotation, and that makes it so that you have all sorts of driving a lane going to that side. So, Grayson, that's where, the, that's where Grayson Allen brings his best value as a pro at this point. Keita bates job. he's a forward who started about half the season for the Spurs last year. He also shot 39% from three. Bull Bull, a 7-foot, 2-inch center. He started 33 games for the Magic last year. On a per-36-minute basis, 15 points, 10 rebounds, and two blocks. Again, that's that's per-36. Super talented, just still learning how to play the game at this point in his career. Drew Eubanks. Super athletic backup center for the Blazers last year. He is undersized for his position, though. He's only about six foot 6'9", uh, but he did make half of his jump shots last year. He only took 30, but he made 15 of them. Uh, I think he's going to be an interesting option for the Suns when they go into more of a switching type of scheme, which we'll talk about later. Jordan Goodwin, a bench guard for the Wizards last year. I don't think he'll crack the rot- rotation this year. Eric Gordon, I thought this was an underrated pickup. Eric shot well for the Clippers last year in the regular season, struggled a little bit in the postseason, but again, their shot creation tanked when Kawhi Leonard got hurt and Paul George was out. So you're not getting as quality spot-up attempts, if that makes sense. Um, still a versatile fire hydrant of a defender. I like him better in a switching scheme because he can guard up a position, doesn't navigate screens as well as he used to. But he still is a, a is a useful perimeter defender. He's really good at being physical without fouling and disrupting guys on their base so that they don't get lift into their shots. I think he's a good option to have as the fifth guy in any lineup, especially in closing groups. Uh, they might need to eventually upgrade that, which we'll talk about in a minute, but I like him right now as an option and certainly as a value. Pick up Keon Johnson, a bench guard who came over in the eight and deal. Don't expect him to play much either. Nasir Little. This is a team that's thin at forward, so I wouldn't be surprised if he plays more than you'd expect. A versatile bench forward uh, has a surprising amount of polish, attacking closeouts, can actually put the ball on the floor a little bit, and can shoot a little bit. He was fifty-four percent effective field goal percentage on catch and shoot jumpers last year, fifty-one percent effective field goal percentage on pull up jump shots. He actually made thirty-five off the dribble jump shots at over a point per possession. That's really impressive. Uh, Chimezi Metu, a a bench big who played 10 minutes a game for the Kings last year, 17 points and 10 rebounds per 36 minutes. You don't want Navi, a 6'9 forward from the Nets last year, one of the best catch-and-shoot guys in the league. Last year, he shot 69% in effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers, 75% when he was unguarded, just deadly when he's open. He converted spotted possessions at 1.23 points per possession, which is off the charts good. Their two major acquisitions were Yusuf Nurkic, Starting center for the Blazers the last seven years. Believe it or not, Yusuf Nurkic is only 29 years old. He just turned 29. That was kind of a shock to me because it feels like he's been in the league forever. And then Bradley Beal. So what I want to do at this point is I want to take a deeper scout on both of those two players because obviously we're looking at this as KD and Devin Booker, um, this third starter that's going to play the three that that will see who that ends up being. Or I guess uh, – um, uh, just it could t- technically be a four, but I would imagine it'll be a three. Someone who's more of a perimeter defender, and then it's going to be essentially Yusuf Nurkic and Bradley Beal bracketing all of that. So let's talk about those two guys for a little bit. Now, after the Yusuf Nurkic trade, there was a lot of pushback, and um, mainly just from a talent perspective, you're taking a player who is more consistently available and DeAndre, and who's a better defensive player. Uh, like th- that's the the angle that everyone's like, "What are you guys doing?" But if you if you zoom zoom in on it a little bit, as I started asking people around the league who are more well connected to me, uh, w- more well connected than me, I should say, uh, most of them were saying the same thing that the Suns were basically looking this looking at this as a as an upgrade in the form of short role passing. So again, if you look at the, um, if you look at the Phoenix Suns with Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and Bradley Beal. just because of how dynamic all three of those guys are as pull-up shooters and as scorers in general, you're going to see a lot of really aggressive pick-and-roll coverages. What does that mean? That means that when you run your two-man game and you bring the guy up to set the screen, or if there's a a Nurkic dribble handoff, or whatever it might be, chances are the screen defender is going to have to show high on every single one of those, meaning the screen defender is going to have to come out to the three-point line to dissuade the pull-up three. And in a lot of cases, you're going to see teams straight up blitz, meaning they're going to aggressively show on the pick and roll and double team and try to get the ball out of KD or Devin Booker or Bradley Beal's hand. So what happens when you do that? It opens up four-on-three opportunities. Not just that, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it in a little bit. But um, in dribble handoff situations, there are four and threes that can materialize too when the screen defender shows if Nurkic hangs onto the ball, right? In those four on three situations, you just have to be really quick processing the floor and making a decision. It's If you if you beat it quickly, you can get an easy basket. If you're just a step slow, they might be able to rotate out of it. Now, one of the things I'm doing this year uh, for all of you guys is I've, it'll be on TikTok and on Instagram. So you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT, that's where I usually talk the game, so to speak, and I'll tweet out links and show announcements and stuff. Instagram, I've been trying to use for more footage stuff, and I've been doing the same for TikTok as well. So look up Jason Timp on on Instagram or on TikTok, and you'll see some examples. But this morning, I put out over a minute of clips of Yusuf Nurkic making plays out of the short roll, and 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 he just is he's he's just got like a kind of a knack for it. He had really good. Uh, chemistry hitting the the cutter out of the weak side corner for lobs and for drop off passes. Even when you'd see the rotation, where the defense would rotate to the guy in the corner, he would identify that and make the read to the wing instead. Really high level stuff. He's just better at it than Deandre Ayton, and so I really do think it's going to make them harder to guard. The other thing I noticed too is, you know, in switches. There were, And I put a couple examples of this as well, you'll see in that same clip. But there are examples where teams would switch the Damian Lillard-Yusuf Nurkic pick-and-roll. He just quickly dives down to the post, makes himself available almost every time he gets double-teamed because he's going against a smaller guard, and then he just makes the kick-out pass to whoever's open. He's just really, really good at it. And then, you know, I went back and I was looking with the way that... uh uh, synergy works in order to track down uh, roll man possessions. I kind of have to go through assists, so I was filtering through basically every assist that Yusuf Nurkic had last year. And as I was looking through, I came across a ton of dribble handoff stuff. And he just kind of has a knack for identifying when dribble handoffs materialize in kickout situations. So like, if he happens to catch on the wing because Dame works in pick and roll and kicks it back out to him, he'll just catch and then quick go into a dribble handoff with Anthony Simons on the other side of the floor or vice versa, right? It's kind of like that, dri- that Draymond Green dribble handoff type of thing. And he just kind of has a knack for it. He's a really good screener. And that can also materialize in four-on-threes. Not only does – because, again, I've talked about this with the dribble handoff before, but the dribble handoff is a lot harder to guard than the pick-and-roll when you have an offensively skilled big because it's much harder for the screen defender to show. Because the screen defender might be able to show and recover back to the roll man if the roll man's not super offensively gifted um, and, or, and is slow to make decisions, right? But in a dribble handoff situation, he's already got the ball. So like it can be even harder to get back into the picture. Like fake the dribble handoff, go to the rim. If he if my screen defender's showing, when I go, I, I'm just right past him downhill. It's like it's like a four on three with skipping the pocket pass, which just buys you even more time to make that read. And so I think you're gonna see a lot of Yusuf Nurkic dribble handoff stuff as a way to kind of like facilitate easier opportunities. Um, for both the ball handlers and for Nurkic himself. Uh, uh, himself. He's also a much better spot-up threat than DeAndre Ayton was. He was up over a point per possession, 1.03, which is above average. Ayton was below a point per possession on super low volume. And uh, Nurkic, I think, logged well over 100 spot-up possessions. So like he's just a, a guy who can actually space the floor a little bit when he doesn't have the ball in any capacity or is not setting a screen. And so I think that brings value. He actually took 2.33s per game last year, which was a career high, and made over 36% of them. So I look at it just as a big offensive upgrade. Like, obviously, defensively, he's a step down from Aiton. But on the offensive end of the floor, it's going to make Phoenix much harder to guard. And we're going to talk about this later when we get to the mailbag because there's a mailbag question surrounding the Lakers and what type of player they should target in the trade market. And I'm going to have a similar take there in the sense that, like, identify what you're good at and lean into that. Because what you want to do is be better at that than anybody you face and have that be the thing that gets you over the top, right? If you try to play someone else at their game, you're probably going to lose if you're not as good at it as they are. And so I like the idea of leaning into offense. Be truly and completely unguardable. Frank Vogel's going to find a way to get you to guard well enough, and maybe that's your best ceiling. And so, again, like I was critical of the Aiton trade uh, initially when it happened. Now, having done more research, I understand it better. I'm still kind of on the fence about it, just from a talent perspective with Aiton. Um, but I can see the thought process, and I really do want to see it in practice and actually see it on the floor in these games before we actually take a, a real hard stance on it. And again, Vogel is a defensive genius. Uh, I, th- I was so impressed by Vogel as a defensive coach when he was with the Lakers. I think Suns fans are really going to like him on that end. His weakness is offensive organization, but you've got so much offensive IQ on the floor just with those four guys that I don't think that's going to be an issue. So it's kind of the perfect coach for this particular situation. It's kind of similar to having Tom Brady essentially being the brains of your offense while you know Bill Belichick focuses on the defensive end. It's, it's kind of like a smart pairing in that sense. And you got to look at the personnel here. Cause like Frank Vogel is traditionally like a, a, a drop coverage coach who prefers to guard actions two on two. Meaning when there's a ball screen, Vogel does not want to help if he can avoid it. And he wants to try to get the guard to chase over the top and funnel downhill into the rim protector. But typically that requires a great rim protector. And Frank Vogel's had great rim protectors in his career. Guys like Roy Hibbert, guys like Anthony Davis, you get the point. So like, obviously this team is different and so I'll be really interested to see how Vogel changes his schematic approach with this particular team. Because the way I look at it, I think they should be trying to mimic Denver. I think that they should try to use their pick and roll defense similar similar to the way Denver does by bringing Nurkic higher in ball screens. Because you got to identify, like with the offensive minded guys like Brad Bleal, Devin Booker, and Kevin Durant, they probably aren't going to chase over screens super well. Obviously, Frank's going to ask him to. But I think, I think I would imagine he's aware that he's not going to get the same type of commitment fighting over the top of screens that he did from Dennis Schroeder and Alex Caruso when he was with the Lakers, right? So like, I, my guess is he's going to offer more high help. So he's going to have Nurkic come up high. This is what the Nuggets do with Jokic for the most part. They also ran some deeper drop. But for the most part, the Nuggets ran throughout last season a high drop with Nikola Jokic. Then they ask Aaron Gordon to help out of the weak side corner basically as the low man. Meaning like he's keeping tabs on the guy in the weak side corner, but also offering help at the rim as an athlete. That's a role that Kevin Durant can excel in. So that's kind of the way I'd like to see them kind of set up their defense, is basically against bad pull-up jump shooting teams. And this is how Denver got away with it. Like, Denver ran their deep drop against the Lakers and against the Timberwolves and against the uh, Heat because of the fact that they didn't have high-level pull-up jump shooting, right? But then against Phoenix, they were bringing... Jokic up higher, right? That's the kind of decision that that Vogel's going to make. He's going to look at the situation like, I okay, this particular matchup, they don't have great pull-up shooting. We can sit in a deeper drop guard. These actions two on two stay out of rotation. Okay, now we're playing, you know, Steph Curry or one of the other great pull-up jump shooters in the league. Okay, we're bringing Nurkic up high. We're sitting in, uh, in, we're kind of showing or in a high drop in these situations and asking Kevin Durant to kind of help on the backside, defending the action three on two. I think that's kind of the way that they're going to try to defend and then essentially just have really smart rotations on the back end. And that's where accountability is going to become a big deal, especially with the stars on the roster. Um, and lastly, with the, with the Nurkic thing, he's just much more willing to buy into a role on a team than DeAndre Ayton is. And so, again, like even if we look at the relative ceilings, who's more likely to reach their relative ceiling with this team? Probably Nurkic. And so I think that's another potential upside here. Bradley Beal. He averaged 23 points, 4 rebounds, and 5 assists in 50 games for the Wizards last year. 59% true shooting, which is the third highest mark of his career. Uh, Shot over 50% from the field. That was a big uh, um, indicator there. 668 points on 659 pick and rolls. That's only 1.01 points per possession or the 62nd percentile. We'll talk about efficiency in a minute because I have a theory there. 47 points on 45 post-ups. He's a good post-up guard. 1.04 points per possession. That's 57th percentile. 210 points on 238 ISOs. That's 0.88 points per possession, which is in the 39th percentile. Now, when we're looking at efficiency there, again, you got to remember it's a bad team. He's taking a lot of shots. He's getting the brunt of the defensive game planning, and he's passing to lesser players than some of the better teams that you see in the league. So just keep that in mind. Excuse me. I expect Bradley Beal to be a very efficient scorer and shot creator for the Suns this year. He was an excellent spot-up player, 1.16 points per possession. He shot 57% in effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jump shots. 49% eff- effective field goal percentage on pull-up jump shots. Again, that's not great. That's good. Not great. Not great. But, again, you got to factor in the type of shots that he had to take with this particular team. Uh, He was one of the best rim-finishing guards in the league, and this is an exciting thing for the Suns. 3.5 restricted area makes per game, which is awesome, and then 72% shooting in the restricted area, which is, like, unbelievably good. That's, like, LeBron Giannis territory. Uh, Not quite, but close in that territory. Those guys are, like, around 75%. For a guard to be up over 70% is basically unheard of. And so Bradley Beal... I think that's going to be an interesting way for him to impact winning on this team is to apply rim pressure, which is something that the team can struggle with outside of Devin Booker. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories Let's talk about the concept of diminishing returns for a minute. So uh, those of you guys who have been listening to the show for a while have heard me say this about many different teams, but it's a consistent talking point I brought up with this particular Suns roster. When you have responsibilities that have to be filled on the floor, stars take up huge chunks of those responsibilities. So let's look at the offensive end and you look at like shot creation responsibilities, play finishing responsibilities out of like the short roll, pick and roll type stuff, pick and pop type and stuff, and then like spot-up play, like attacking closeouts, you know, driving kick basketball. There's all these responsibilities that have to get filled. And so when you drop a – and I'm not even talking about the defensive end yet. When you drop a star into the equation, he takes up so much of the shot creation responsibilities, which is great. But then you add a second guy in there, and now it's like, great, okay, now we have two great guys that can create shots. Okay, now we're adding a third dude who can create shots. That's awesome. But, like, how good are we in play finishing – And how good are we in spot-up situations, right? And then the defensive end of the floor. Like, a lot of times a guy, an offensive player, will take a smaller role offensively, right? Like, I'm only going to operate in uh, spot-up situations off the ball. Or I'm only going to operate in the short roll. But on the defensive end, I'm like your best point-of-attack defender. I'm your best pick-and-roll screen defender or whatever it is. Like, you have bigger responsibilities on that end. And if Devin Booker, uh, uh, Kevin Durant, and Bradley Beal just focus on shot creation – you're going to see a lot of responsibilities on the floor that don't get filled. And so, again, like, uh, this team – I'm going to talk about this more when we get later, but, like, get to the end of the show, but, like, when when we talk about the big picture, but this team does have a wide range of potential outcomes based on just the level of commitment from these guys. So, like, if Bradley Beal commits to defense and operates off the ball a lot and attacks the rim a lot with force – then he can massively raise the ceiling by filling areas of the of the of the responsibilities on the floor that need to be filled, right? If KD becomes one of the best help defenders in the league like I talked about, that could be the difference between them having a functional defense and not having a functional defense. KD's rebounding has been down in d- recent years. Obviously, you're going to need KD to rebound a lot. You know, these are things that are uh, are going to be uh, worth watching over the course of the season. Devin Booker, like he's a he's turned himself into a slightly above average point of attack defender. You might have to go up a level from there, potentially, right? Especially if you end up going offense at the three instead of going with someone like Josh Okoji. So like each of the stars has to view the depth of star talent as a means with which to devote resources to dirty work. And if they do those things, I think they're going to hit the high end of their probability. All right, let's look at the depth chart really quick. At guard, Devin Booker, Bradley Beal, Grayson Allen, Eric Gordon, Damian Lee, Jordan Goodwin, and Keon Johnson. Really deep there. That's like five playable, legitimately playable guards, four of which are very good. Uh, At the forward position, a little thin. Kevin Durant, you know, obviously one of the best players in the league, but after that, it's all bench forwards. It's Nasir Little, Josh Akoji, Yuda Watanabe, and Keita Bates-Job. At center, Yusuf Nurkic, Drew Eubanks, and Bol Bol. That's a decent rotation right there. Uh, The clear weak point of the roster is at forward. You don't have a starting caliber player that you can slot between Bradley Beale and Devin Booker, and KD and Yusuf Nurkic. And there's a bunch of options there, right? Like you can go with Josh Koji as a point of attack guy. He's one of the better point of attack defenders in the league, right? You can go with Eric Gordon for shooting and then kind of lean more in a switching scheme because Eric Gordon can switch onto forwards. Uh, you can go Grayson Allen. For that above the break shooting that I was referencing earlier, you'd want Nabi is deadly, especially out of the corner, so you can go with him too. But each of those guys has a red flag. Each of those guys has a weakness, right? Like a Koji is a extremely limited spot up threat. Eric Gordon is older at this phase and not as good defensively as he used to be. Uh, uh, Grayson Allen obviously has his, uh, is undersized and has some limitations there. You'd want Nabi you know, is a little upright and can struggle to defend on the perimeter. So each of those guys has kind of like a big red flag. And so don't be, uh, don't be surprised if over the course of the season, if the Suns are one of the teams that gets mentioned a lot in conversations for a versatile like point of attack defender that can shoot, just keep an eye on that over the course of the season. So uh, on offense, and we've already talked a lot about this with the Nurkic thing, but you know, I know this is not exactly a hot take, but I think the Suns are going to score a shit ton of points. They, they, It's not just that they have three shot creators. They have three highly versatile shot creators. All three of them, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, and Kevin Durant, can all run pick and roll. They can all torch bigs on switches on perimeter ISOs, right? They all can punish smaller guards in the post. They all can play off ball. They all can pass the basketball. Yusuf Nurkic has that dribble handoff fulcrum we talked about earlier and with his ability to pass and with his ability to punish switches in the post and his ability to space the floor. Like they're just gonna be really, really difficult to guard. The biggest question mark offensively is going to be that fifth starter. Because the Ekoji problem is, is like if you keep him on the floor, your defense goes up a big level, right? Because Josh Ekoji is such an outstanding point of attack defender. But the downside is is He's so weak as a spot-up player that you allow other teams to defend your actions three-on-two. And I don't care how good Devin Booker, Bradley Beal, and Kevin Durant are, they become infinitely more guardable when you can sacrifice a third defender into that action and not have to worry about giving up much if uh, much at all, if anything, on the weak side. And so that, that to me, is going to be something to keep an eye on over the course of the season. I would probably go all in on offense. Again, like referencing that idea that we talked about earlier, um, uh, and being like kind of leaning into your strengths. This has the potential to be one of the great offensive teams of all time. And so I would probably go with Eric Gordon um, as, as the starting three. Um, I consider you to want Nabi if you're having issues with, uh, with, with rebounding. I'm sure they'll try a bunch of different guys in that position. And like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to upgrade it over the course of the season. Uh, again, look out for Yusuf Nurkic as a fulcrum. Look out for more dribble handoffs than you're used to seeing from the Suns. And again, like he just is a really good screener and scoring threat. So I think that's going to make their ball screen game more dynamic. One last thing to watch offensively, hunting mid-range shots. It's fine. It's the identity of this team as long as you're making them. In the regular season last year, KD shot over 60% from the field on mid-range pull-up jump shots, just from the mid-range, over 60%. That, and that's co- including the Nets and the Suns regular season reps. Like That's over 1.2 points per possession. That's awesome. And that works. The problem is, is as a team, the Suns shot just 46% on pull-up twos against Denver. That's 0.92 points per shot. You see the difference? What's the difference between a 120 offensive rating and a 92 offensive rating? Completely untenable. The defense has to do something. We can live with that shit. That's the difference, right? Uh, KD himself was only 42% on pull-up twos in the playoff or in the Denver series. Um, That's 0.84 points per shot. The coaches are just going to live with that. As a result, the Suns notched just a 110.6 offensive rating in the series against the Nuggets. That's just not close to good enough, w- especially when you fancy yourself an offensive juggernaut. So one of two things needs to happen. like Either KD needs to start making those shots in the playoffs, which we've had two postseasons in a row where he hasn't. So he either needs to just start making them because those are fluky series. Or as a team, they got to adjust their shot selection and try to identify things that are going to be more efficient on a per possession basis in the postseason more pull-up threes right more attacking the rim and trying to draw fouls so you can set your defense that sort of thing on the defensive end again we talked about it earlier but the denver scheme is something i'd consider so like bringing nurkic high and drop against better pull-up jump shooters offering a lot of weak side help with kevin durant um when drew eubanks is out there because he's a better athlete i wouldn't be surprised if you saw them do more switching you can imagine a lineup with booker beal and uh uh kd in Eubanks and then like Eric Gordon. And then that just being like five guys that you feel generally comfortable switching with as long as you help on the weak side and rotate out of it. So that's something I'd look for. And then defensive rebounding is just going to be a key all season. Like how well as a team do they work on, uh, uh, on tracking down and hunting rebounds down? They got absolutely murdered on the glass by Denver. And that's just something you got to be able to contend with. If you're going to get out of the Western conference. In summary, I think this team has the widest range of outcomes between like the worst case scenario and the best case scenario, even if we factor in good health. Um, there's a version of this story where they're healthy all year and they lose in the first or second round and hover around the bottom half of the standings. There's a version of this where they kick everyone's ass and win the title. And it really just comes down to whether or not the stars are dedicated to the dirty work, which I believe they will be. So I lean more towards the high end of that, which is why I have them as high as I do. Um, but, again, like, it's going to come down to the little things. And I talked about this earlier, but with parity in the league, like, again, all these teams are really good for different reasons. The Suns have all this offensive firepower. The Lakers have the best defense in the league, in my opinion, uh, uh, best defensive player in Anthony Davis. Obviously, I think they have some wrinkles they got to sort out in their playoff defense. The Denver Nuggets have the best playoff offense in the league. Like, they're just unguardable on the, offen- uh, on the offensive end in the playoffs. The Milwaukee Bucks have this new Dame uh, uh, Giannis thing, but they're weak in point of attack defense. You know, the Boston Celtics are poised to be a truly elite defense, but they still struggle with top end shot creation. So each team in that list has strengths and weaknesses, right? Like, and it's going to come down to the little things. Like, it's not just Phoenix's offense versus the Lakers' defense, it's are the Lakers deeply committed to those details? is Darvin Ham going to be able to make the necessary adjustments? Is Frank Vogel going to be able to make the necessary adjustments? Like these are the kinds of things over the course of the playoffs that are going to make the difference between teams that are relatively close. Like I have the Suns at 5, but they're not demonstrably worse than the number 1 team. Like they're not. I, like they're they're all on the same tier. Like I'm splitting hairs with these rankings. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Phoenix beat all four of them. Like, Golden State is clearly a little level below these guys. The other five are all on the same tier, in my opinion. I just have the Suns at five, uh, based on based on basically my concern over whether or not they're going to be willing to win in rock fights, which we will find out. Uh, I think there's a lot of... Again, I've seen a lot of Suns fans like, oh, we took two games off of the Nuggets. Yeah, you did. But you got your ass kicked in the other four games. Like, literally got your ass kicked. Worse than any of the other teams. And in the two games you won, it required like all-time great shooting from Devin Booker. Like two of the greatest shooting performances you will ever see in the NBA playoffs. To barely scrape out two wins before you got your ass kicked in the other four games. So I think they're further away than people think. Uh, At least they were last year. And we'll see this year how committed they are to those details. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. I saw in the Jovan Buha video that a lot of people uh, were complaining about us talking about the Lakers. Again, I kind of give a speech like this every year, but couple things. Obviously I have a job to do and that is to generate revenue. Otherwise I don't get a job. Right. And so I have a certain obligation to cover the teams that have the largest fan bases. So it's going to be a lot of Lakers. It's going to be a lot of warriors. It's going to be a lot of Celtics. It's going to be a lot of Knicks and heat and things along those lines. Right. Um, but the reality is, is like I go five or six days a week. Like we, we do over three hours of NBA content every single week. And so even if an hour and a half of it is Lakers and Warriors, which it won't be, but like, let's just say a third of it is Lakers and Warriors. And let's say the Lakers and the Warriors are in a lot of the titles and thumbnails and stuff. That doesn't mean that that's all we're doing. I I cover the entire league. Like those of you guys who follow the show uh, more uh, diligently on a daily basis know that. And so one of the, a couple things, one of the things we're going to be doing this year is we're going to use, we're going to put out multiple videos. So for instance, like if I have a a show in the regular season that covers five games, we'll have the full show, but then we'll break off the portions of it that are the other teams so that you guys can find it more easily. But again, like you got to remember, like most of the day, most of the NBA shows don't go daily. Like they'll hit all the teams, but they'll go two or three times a week, right? That's the advantage of going as often as we go is I can cover the super popular teams very diligently, but still offer pretty well-rounded coverage of the rest of the league. So just stay to stay glued to the feeds. You'll see uh, it parsed out better. if you If you go to the YouTube channel and you see a 30-minute video and it's got LeBron's face on it or it's got Steph Curry's face on it, chances are I'm not talking LeBron or Steph for 30 minutes. It's probably LeBron or Steph for 10 minutes and then 20 minutes on the rest of the league. So, uh, again, like there, there's, there's, a, there's a business reality to the way this show is organized, but I do truly take it seriously that we cover the entire NBA, and I'm going to put in an enormous amount of work this year to make sure these other teams get covered. You just got to understand that we have a marketing plan, which is going to market to large fan bases because that's where the money is. Uh, but we are going to try to do a better job of making sure that the uh, – the videos are are easier to find for the other teams as well. All right, three mailbag questions. What's up, Jay? Dig the show big time when ring culture with ring culture being such a huge swing factor in players' legacies, how and where will Dane be placed if he wins a chip with Giannis? KD's chips are somewhat still in question to some because it wasn't his team. I'm curious how it will be viewed and what a chip could mean to his overall place in history. Uh I, I don't think he's ever going to move you know, into serious conversations with any of the guys that we think of as best players in this era. I mean, he's made one first-team All-NBA. That's that. That's a huge gap between him and some of his peers. He's kind of always just been considered a fringe all-star, like or a superstar. Like, he's a superstar, but, like, in the bottom end of that tier. And so, I mean, obviously, becoming a champion would greatly improve where he lands all-time, but I, I think he's a long, long way away from being in, in, into any serious conversations with the guys at the top of the league. But like also a lot of it has to do with how it goes down. Like if Dame shoots 42% in the postseason and and struggles and and they barely get it done and Giannis is a superhero, it's not going to look as good as if he makes a ton of big shots and puts the team on his back in crunch time and kind of is clearly the one that puts him over the top. And so really that question has a bunch of layers to it. But the short version is no matter what happens, he's not going to enter into any really serious conversations with the championship this year. Next question. Um, funny enough, it's a more pointed version of the question you asked Yovan in regards to the Lakers need for a shot maker and or elite perimeter defender. Let's say the bulls blow it up this year. Should the Lakers pursue, pursue Zach Levine as a shot maker or Alex Caruso as an elite perimeter defender? Also, what other players do you think the Lakers should keep an eye on? So, uh, okay. Uh, basically I, I talked about this with Jovan, but like, if you can get a shot maker that's a true top-tier shot maker, someone like Kyrie Irving, then yeah, you got you gotta go for it. Like if if the Mavericks just completely bottom out this year and Kyrie asks for a trade and the Lakers have the assets to make it happen, then then you you do something like that, obviously, because it just he's such a top tier shot creator, it would alleviate all of the Lakers issues on that end and make them a much more versatile team, right? No different than Dame joining the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Um, but if it's anybody less than that, I think you run the risk of shifting towards an identity that you're not going to be as good at as the best teams in the league. So like, given the cho- choice between Levine or Caruso, i take Caruso. Why? Because this is a Lakers team that desperately needs a, a perimeter defender that is a functional offensive player, and that's what Alex Caruso is. And like that could put the Lakers over the top into being a truly elite, top-tier defense. Whereas right now... They're capable of that, but they're missing some of the top, you know, perimeter talent that they need to make that happen, right? Especially with the loss of Dennis Schroeder. So, you know, given the choice between those two guys, like that's, that's kind of like a perfect example of what I'm talking about at the deadline. If the Lakers have access to a top tier shot creator, you go get him. But if you can't, then I would go after an elite perimeter defender that rounds out your starting lineup. Uh, last mailbag question. I hear a lot of players and coaches talk about one of the main things they place an emphasis on is accountability. Are they talking about getting star players to buy in or what do they mean by that? Accountability is basically just like everybody in the entire locker room being bought in to what the expectations are from the staff. So like usually in a training camp, I, I mean, obviously I haven't been through an NBA training camp, but I've been through the college basketball version of training camp. And you know, like uh, the serious programs that you go to, like, you like, the last school I played at, like you, you literally go up into a classroom and they hand out binders and the binders have like a, a clear breakdown of what expectations are off the court, a a clear breakdown of expectations in terms of showing up to practice on time and what, you know, like specific team rules. And then like you go through it and it's like, then there's five or six things that the coach wants to set as like essentially your, your core principles. And then like, then it has all your plays in it, like as a playbook and your base defensive concepts and like. Essentially, that uh, there's there's expectations laid out from day one. And then from there, it's about holding people accountable to those expectations. Famously that that last year that I was uh, playing at ACU and when the coach handed out all that stuff, we had another meeting two days later in the same cl- classroom to go over one of our defensive concepts and like half the players forgot to bring their binder and we immediately just went down to the floor and ran all day like like because like, that was an example of him like, trying to, from day one, set an expectation for what the rules are and and make sure that the team understands that if they don't live up to those expectations, then there's going to be repercussions. That is accountability. Accountability is making sure that people understand if they do not obey whatever the, the rules are, whatever the expectations are, that there are consequences, whether that's getting called out in front of your team, whether that's having to run, whether that's a suspension or a fine, like whatever that is at the pro level, it's probably different than it was in college. But like accountability is making sure that everybody in the roster sticks to those principles. So for instance, like, let's say Frank Vogel wants to set, you know, a defensive identity from day one in Suns camp. Like he can't make Josh Okoji run over screens and scream at him every time he dies on a screen, but then let Bradley Beal get away with it. It's got to be down-the-line accountability. Otherwise, it sets a culture that the stars don't have to obey, which is going to you know, kind of foment a bunch of other issues. So again, accountability is a vitally important part. Of any championship journey because if you don't have expectations and you don't stick to them you're never going to achieve your full potential as a basketball team all right guys that is all i have for today as always i sincerely appreciate you supporting the show uh we're going to be back on monday with a breakdown of the preseason games from this weekend and then we'll get back to number four on the season previews on tuesday and then we'll do some more preseason breakdown on wednesday i appreciate you guys and i will see you on monday